Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and worship the Lord God with you. Uh, before I begin, I just wanted to you know, continue to encourage you all to pray for what is going on in the Middle East. Truly such a massive loss of life and what we can foretell will be a continual loss of life is tragic. And so let's lift our prayers up to the Lord, asking Him for extended grace and peace in that area so that we can also continue to share the gospel with those that are in need there. Uh, As we begin, we are, just to remind you, we are on the last chapter of our study and series in Hebrews. And so this is an exciting time as we come to a close. There's only one more week after this, and we're going to take a big chunk of chapter 13. And so remembering this, uh, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for the word that you give us to strengthen and encourage us, to guide and illuminate our paths. We ask, God, that our hearts may be enlightened by your Holy Spirit, that we may be able to understand even the hard things in your word for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. You can find it on page 949. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. Hebrews chapter 13, from uh, from verses 7 through 19, when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of of lips that acknowledge his name, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
The end of the book, or end of any book, is where you start to wind down. Usually, you start to slow down a little bit. That's how you know a story's coming to a close. Is it not? When you watch a movie, when you read a book, it starts to slow down. You're like, oh, this is an end is coming. So we kind of prepare ourselves. Even though that would be the normal case for things, it's not so in the book of Hebrews. And in this passage, the final chapter of Hebrews, we encounter one of the most difficult parts of the book. It is, in fact, so difficult to understand. Many commentators have had different interpretations of what these passages might mean. And it's almost as if this one is different. You've heard a lot of stories before, but I want you to pay attention even more as we come to a close. It's almost as if the writer is demanding the strictest attention from his readers to the very end. It's like you're going 100 miles per hour and you know you have to stop sometime, but you're not stopping. And you're like, what is going on? We're still going 100 miles per hour, maybe even a little faster. Maybe there's a dead end, maybe there's not. And all these movies now have these like false walls, you know, you have like a gate in a train station and you go through it to find a magical world or you fly a plane through a mountain only to find like a hidden kingdom and all these things. So we have stories like that already showing us that the world is kind of okay with this. We're kind of thinking about this. This is not a completely foreign subject or topic to think about or an idea. Perhaps it's so that especially at the end then, in this chapter, that we are meant to continue to go at full speed. And I believe this will become clearer as we continue on this passage. So let's get to it. In verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The section opens up and ends with the notion of leaders. If you look at this passage, this passage is sandwiched by leaders, and at the end of the passage, or the paragraph before the benediction, as he comes to a close, it's ended with leaders. So from 7 to what we have read here, 19, it's sandwiched by leaders. The idea of leaders, then, are very important. The middle portion is what we kind of focus on, but we also have to understand the sandwich part, the buns, are important in a burger. Leaders are important. They have a role to play in the life of the church. And the first bun of leaders in this church, or the church in Hebrews, is talking about past leaders. The role of past leaders, you'll notice that the verb tense are in past tense. In the Greek, it's what we call the aorist tense, but these are the final definite past tense verbs. These are past leaders that the readers of this letter, they are commanded to remember. Remember your leaders. And by remember, the author is telling his audience to keep thinking about them. Remember is to keep thinking about your past leaders. And who are these leaders then? 
The leaders are qualified and they have the characteristic that we are to understand. The leaders that he is talking about are leaders who preached the word of God. So they were pastors. They were former pastors who were to this church. So when the author is referring to leaders here, I believe in this context, he's specifically referring to shepherds or pastors of the church. And so who are pastors? They are leaders, yes, but in what sense? They are leaders who serve the church. And how do I know this? If you look in Luke chapter 22, there's a section where Jesus is talking about leaders. In Luke 22:25, it says this, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Remember, he's talking about who leaders are. This is how Jesus defines leaders. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. This word leader here in Luke is the exact same Greek word that we see in Hebrews chapter 13. This is the same word. The leader as one who serves, and the word serve is diakonon, which we also have derived to understand to be deacons. So leaders are people who serve, or deacon as a verb. Deacon, not as a title. For, he says this in verse 27 in Luke 22, For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So we understand in our world, those who are being served feel like and they are noticed and they are recognized as the greater. You know, you have a waiter, you tell them what to bring you. It's not like you have a waiter, like I would like a steak medium rare with a side of fries. Let's say you say that. And the waiter doesn't bring you some tacos. That's not how it works. They give you what you ask for. Nothing wrong with tacos or steaks. Unless you have it well done then. We'll talk later. But it is what you would tell them to bring you. But Jesus flips it around. He says, well, isn't, not, isn't the person reclining that you understand to be the greater one? However, look at my life. I am here to serve. And in fact, the Bible says that Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. Meaning Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so those who are preaching the word of God are essentially servants. What do they serve? They serve the word of God. Again, I'd like to emphasize that a lot of pastors think that perhaps they are the chefs. They make the food and they bring it out for you to eat. But God is the chef. Pastors are deacons, meaning they serve the word that the Lord has prepared. And so, in that spirit, if you look at how the pastors are set up, in that spirit, the congregations or the congregation that's listening to this are also to be the ones then to imitate their leaders by imitating Christ then. So you imitate the leaders that imitate Christ. Again, how do these leaders serve? Specifically, they serve in the ministry of word and prayer. It's shown to us in Acts 6 when 
Peter says we need to serve or deacon the word, the ministry and the word and prayer. And so we need other people to serve tables. They're both the word deacon. So one person has to deacon the ministry of word and prayer. Another person has to deacon tables. And the deaconing of tables is whom we now know as actual deacons in the church. They are the office of deacon, the people who serve tables. That's only two roles mentioned in the church. There are many roles inside the church. You don't have to be an elder or deacon to have a role to serve. All roles, though, this is what I want us to understand, all roles in the church, let's say you're in the church, you're part of the church, you have a commission to be a body, member. You have been given gifts. What do you do with them? You serve. Every role in the church is a role of service. So if you, are, if you really believe that you're a part of the church, you are serving. That's how the body of Christ works. Preaching, however, we will go back to it. Preaching is a charisma. It's a grace. It's a gift. Preachers have been endowed with a gift. And this gift is what we understand now to be a call. You have to be called to be a preacher. I'm going to go a little bit on preachers today because... I believe that we have come upon a time now where we are seeing a massive shortage in young people that want to be preachers, um, specifically Gen Z. You know, If you're a Gen Zer, who wants to be a preacher? Very, very little. And I believe it has some responsibility. Some of that blame has to go to the church. We need to be raising preachers as well as other servants. I want to go a little bit about what a preacher is. A preacher is someone who has a gift, meaning they have the call. And a call is both internal, which means the conviction. You have to have a conviction in your heart to be a preacher. And the call is also external, meaning you need to be affirmed by the church. You can't just think that you want to be a preacher and you're a preacher. The internal call is not enough. You must have an external call. If you're called to be a preacher... And not many are, I believe, these days. I've always told you, and you came to me, there are many people that have come to me, do you think I'm called to be a pastor? And I would say you need at least three conditions that are met to be a pastor. You need an internal, an external, and you need an ordinal. Internal, external, ordinal. It needs, and by ordinal, I talked about internal, external, right? Ordinal means it needs to be affirmed by the Word of God. It needs to be affirmed by the Word of God. This is why we have a maybe controversial take on women becoming elders. We say women cannot be preachers or elders because of 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, and various other places. And especially when we get to these verses, people now have thought that, wait, isn't this just for Timothy? Isn't this just for the church of Corinth? Except when you read Timothy chapter 1 to 2, he says, Timothy, this is for all the churches. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 33, even before he talks about it, he says, this is for all the churches. And then he qualifies, 
Why is the Lord giving such specific requirements and demands on who can preach, who can have certain roles, why men have certain roles, why women have certain roles, why elders have certain qualifications, why deacons have certain qualifications? Why is that the case? And when now, in our generation, if we say, I think the Bible says this, there is a huge uproar. There's emotional just stirring up to get so upset and we say, it looks like it's pretty plain in the Word, and there are all these challenges now that have come up. In my personal experience, and I, you know, if you have stayed with me for the many years that I've been a pastor here from the beginning, it has been quite the journey for me. It has not been easy, but this is the reason why I believe God gives us these commands. It says this in 1 Corinthians 1433. The Lord qualifies why he says all these things, saying that the reason why he's going to say this order is because God is not a God of disorder, but he is a God of peace. All this stirring up is so that we would not have peace, right? But God is saying, I'm going to give you this order so that you understand I am a God of peace. So ordinal implies ordination, of course, but both words come from the word order. Order and peace are in line with each other. When you don't have the order that God has set up, you will have disorder. And the evidence of disorder in organizations that call themselves churches these days are staggering. If the preacher is disordered, how can anyone reasonably believe that the church will have peace? Impossible. Impossible. I can assure you that you will not. And I will add that disorder eventually, but always. And there can be a time of grace. There can be a pause before the punishment comes. Of course there is. God is always patient with this church. But disorder always and eventually grows. Never stays, always grows. And by disorder, I mean any qualification. I'm not just talking about women or men or in this point. I'm talking about any qualification that the Lord sets in His Word. If it is transgressed, then there will be disorder. Those qualifications are set, and this is what I mean by Ordinal. So a preacher must have an internal, external, and ordinal call. But the gift of preaching is like any other gift. The gift of preaching is like any other gift, and it is to serve Christ and the body of Christ, His church. The Lord gifts His church with many, many gifts. But there is a reason why their preaching is highlighted here in verse 7. Again, there's so much to say about preaching, how it is the ordinary means of grace. If you grew up Presbyterian, you understand this kind of language. The ordinary means of grace is how you are changed. When I say ordinary means of grace is when you hear solid preaching from the Word of God, you are slowly and invariably changed. It's not these big events that change you. It's the slow, steady preaching of God. You hear the Word of God and your life is slowly being sanctified. You hear the word of God. At first it's difficult, but then peace starts to come. 
and your heart is filled with peace. That's the ordinary means of grace. Also, preaching is one of the three marks of what makes a church. Calvin would say this, but it's evident in the Bible. You need the Word of God being preached. If you don't have that, it's not a church. Of course, number two and number three are the administration of the sacraments, and number three would be church discipline. But this is important. Why is it important? We go to verse 8. Why is preaching so important? Verse 8. And I'm telling you, this is why this passage is difficult. It says here, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What does that have to do with anything? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Absolutely true. What's that have to do with the previous verse? You might be wondering. It sounds almost like a random insertion, but it's not. In fact, many verses may sound like this at first in this passage, but it's not. There is a sequence Again, that you have to keep your eyes open to and ask the Lord to open your heart for understanding. This verse is what we call a bridge verse. It bridges verses 7 and verses 9. So that means in a bridge, you can go to the other side and you can come to this side. There are two sides after the bridge. That means it connects these two, but you go back and forth from these two sides. That's a bridge verse. So this is a bridge verse from 7 And verse 9, this is going to connect. And so it's not an isolated remark by the author. All of a sudden he's like, you know what? Jesus Christ is the same. Hallelujah. That's not what he is doing here. This is not just simply talking about the ontological immutability of Jesus Christ. This is not a highfalutin theological term that he just wants to put in. The statement itself is true, but there is a reason for its sequence here in this passage. I said this would be difficult. We haven't got to the difficult part yet. So hold your horses, brace yourselves, right? There is a crisis of leadership that the author is addressing. There is a reason why he is referring back to the leaders of the past and asking people to remember them and now talking about the immutability and transcendence of Jesus Christ. We must not miss the blatant comparison that is being made. Preachers were in past tense. What does that mean? Preachers change. Preachers change. And what is this comparing to? Christ does not change. Preachers change. I will die. Preachers before you will die. Preachers after you will die. Preachers change. However, what we are seeing a comparison with is while preachers change, Christ does not change. What does that mean? That means while preachers change, the message cannot change. We are trying to change the message today to make it more palatable for people, thinking, you know what, let's change the Bible a little bit. Let's change what the Bible says about sex. Let's change what the Bible says about roles. Let's change what the Bible says about men, women, what God says. Let's change a little so people can take it a little better. Preachers change. The message does not change. For 2,000 years, The message does not change. Why are we so arrogant to think that in the last 50 years, we can change this message and the church can be successful? Do you understand why we have come to such a place of decadence? Why our nation and the world is coming crashing down? Do you think it's because 
The message has changed. Do you think that has any correlation to that? Why are our churches suffering so much? Because we don't understand this. Preachers change. Christ does not change. His message, His word does not change. Today, we have many who call themselves preachers who would try and change the message to make it softer, to make it a little more palatable. And here's what it says in 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time is coming, and I believe the time is here, but he says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's a key word here that I want us to kind of focus on in 2 Timothy 4. It says here that for a time is coming when the people will not, what? Endure sound teaching. Sound teaching isn't like eating dessert. Let's be honest here. Sound teaching is something that you have to endure because it's good for us. You know, a lot of times I do like exercising and I will invite people to go and exercise with me because there are a lot of correlations, just like Paul says with boxing and running. There's a lot of correlations to disciplines across the, the spectrum of disciplines and also the discipline or the discipling of Christian disciples. There, there are some very basic foundational things. When I first take someone who is not accustomed to the discipline of, let's say, lifting, but let's say you come to me and you say, Pastor Gene, my goal in life is to bench press 225 pounds. My response to you will be, that's an amazing goal. I love that goal, and I support you in that goal. And it's like, can you help me? Absolutely. What do you bench press now? I don't bench press. Okay, let's try. And then I take you to the gym, and you can bench press 90 pounds, 95 pounds, whatever it is. We have a long way to go. Will you like the training that you have to do to increase that weight? All the people that I take, and I've taken a number of people, they don't like that training at first. People sometimes reject the training. I think I could find a better way. And I guarantee you never get to the 225 that you wanted to get to. You got to what? Endure the training. You have a goal, that's why you endure. You don't just endure because you're uh, like a masochist, you love pain, bring me pain. No one's like that, unless you're sick in the head. And then we have counseling sessions that we could give you. But what we do know is that if you have a goal, there is endurance that you do to hit that goal. Sound teaching you receive because there is a goal. What's the goal? The goal is to be sanctified, is to be holy. And 2 Timothy 4 says, there is a time coming when people won't even endure sound teaching. They can't listen to it. It's too difficult. I can maybe bench press 95. I'm okay. I'll be okay. It's like, what happened to the goal? It doesn't matter anymore. I have a different goal now, and it's to eat, you know, sugary desserts. I don't know, whatever it is. But with itching ears, what they will do is, I'm going to listen to other people who obviously don't have sound teaching. And what will happen then? If you don't endure sound teaching, that means you don't hear teachings from the Bible. You hear teaching, maybe funny stories. You know, I told some stories last week, 
but hopefully it was a good compliment to the to the, the message. But I told a lot about a lot of it, a lot of, of my childhood stories about growing up in a town called Elmhurst and my experiences there. One or two of us here know where Elmhurst is, which is great. Uh, but it's not simply for story that we come to listen. There is a reason why we want to listen to something else. It's because we don't want to endure. It's too difficult. It's too hard. I'm too tired. Don't you understand? I'm so busy. I've been hurt by the church. I don't want to listen to this anymore. There are all these reasons. But what happens when you don't endure? You start to wander off. It says, wander off into myths, which leads us to verse 9. Remember, there's a bridge. Wander off into myths, says in 2 Timothy 4, 3 to 4. And in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 13, it says, do not be led away. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those, who, those devoted to them. It literally means being carried away. It means you are being led away, carried away. You wander off. It's the same thing. There are preachers who in the name of being relevant or more deceitfully these days, they'll cover saying this is in the name of love or caring for others. And they will not preach the full counsel of God. They'll come up to a verse and they don't want to preach it. They'll skip it. And for some odd reason, I don't think it is uh, coincidental, they always skip the ones where it talks about sexual immorality and about gender. Always skipped interestingly enough. And why do you think we have a confusion of family these days? I wonder if it's because we don't preach the full counsel. There is a sense of this word that former leaders that preach the full counsel of God is now being threatened by what is being taught now in the current church. And I'm talking about Hebrews. What the former leaders had preached, they preached the full word of God, the full counsel of God, and that is being threatened by what is being preached now. And there's an example here. It's grace versus food that the heart is strengthened, right? There is a contrast, and this is, this is where it starts to get difficult. This is the difficult part from verses 9 to 13. At first glance, that might make sense. Obviously, grace over food. I grew up in the church. It's all about grace. Until you continue to read the Bible. The Bible says that the heart is actually strengthened by food. Yeah, the heart is strengthened by food. It's true in life, too. When you go home, let's say you went on a long trip or you went to college as a student, and you come home and your mom makes you your favorite meal, your heart is strengthened 100%. Is the Bible saying that we cannot be strengthened by our mom's cooking? But when it is, the Bible does say, let me show you where, in Psalm 104, 14 to 15, it says specifically that. And this is actually a Jewish prayer before meals too, Psalm 104, verse 14. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So food does strengthen man's heart. This is why I'm saying this is a very difficult portion. Food is even used to bring us into the presence of God. Acknowledge the grace of God. Look at the communion table that we have. 
food is used there. And so what does it mean that we are to be strengthened by grace and not by foods? I think an easy way to look at this verse then is to see the difference between looking at grace and looking at food as the primary. If you look at grace as the primary means, meaning through grace we get food that strengthens us, rather than through food we get grace that strengthens us, then we will not switch it around where food is meritorious, meaning the food is so important that you devote yourself to foods. There's ceremony around it. And if you were a Jewish listener, you would have kind of understood because in the Old Testament, there were a lot of cultic or ceremonial laws around food, especially the Passover meal. And if you look at every single religion, there is a huge feast that every religion celebrates. Every religion celebrates it. There's a holiday around it. What Christian holiday is around food only? You can't name any. And so maybe people were like, well, I want to join in this wonderful holiday. They have lots of good foods here. And when you join in that, you start to receive this cultic interpretation of what food is. But in the New Covenant, this is connecting to the previous chapters, in the New Covenant in Jesus Christ, we don't follow the ceremonial laws of food anymore. There is no more. Why is that? Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's going to explain this. This, is, this might seem like it's coming out of nowhere, left field. What do you mean altar, right? It says here there, the people of the new covenant have an altar, and it is saying that anybody else outside, whether it's the old covenant or the non-covenantal people, it doesn't matter. We have an altar that no one else does. What's the altar? The altar is the death of Jesus Christ, the saving and sustaining grace that we have received through Jesus' death. It isn't the meals that save us, but we understand that even the meals of the Old Testament pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. The Passover points to Jesus' sacrifice. All of ceremonial law pointed to Jesus. So when we try to add or re-add laws, what we are doing is we are going to start to teach strange things, diverse things. And this is where we kind of see him understand, the author really understands Leviticus, he understands obviously the entire Bible, but is really pointing to Leviticus chapter 6 when he talks about sin offerings. It says in verse 23 of chapter 6, Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. And in verse 30 of that same chapter, it says, But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. So even in the old Jewish law, the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that the priest could not eat. Almost every sacrifice that was brought in, the priest was able to eat it. So you brought in you know, some kind of offering, the priest would also partake in that. But there were some sacrifices that the priest could not eat. In fact, you had to take it out of the camp and burn it completely. And the author is referring to that. Who can now partake in that? Nobody could. This was completely separate. 
But now he's making a very, very bold statement. He's saying Christians can. Christians can. We have an altar that no one else can partake in. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And this is what I mean by saying what we saw in Leviticus 6. They had no right to eat it. Why is that the case? Because it foreshadowed the atonement of Jesus Christ. It wasn't here yet, so you can't eat it. Just like food is not ready yet, you can't eat it. You try to go into your, your kitchen as a kid and your mom's cooking up a great meal and the food is not ready, you can't eat it. We had a brother here when we had chicken kebabs all ready to grill and it was not ready. It wasn't on the grill yet. And yet he took the chicken kebabs and ate all the chickens raw and didn't understand that he could have gotten very sick. Thankfully, he didn't. And he's still with us today and he's a proud father now. But you don't want to do that is my point. You can't do that. You keep on doing that, Peter, you will die eventually, right? <laughs> but this is, wasn't ready. But what happens once it's ready? Then you can partake. It wasn't ready yet because it was foreshadowing the atonement of Jesus Christ. Once that was completed, it's ready. You can partake. But who can partake? Those that are in Jesus Christ the writer's going to keep on going. I told you this is difficult, but it's glorious. The difficult ones are the glorious ones. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the notion behind the action of sanctifying or consecrating is that what Jesus' blood did, when we are now able to partake in that, it qualifies, it makes you worthy to do what? To worship God. That's what it is. Now that Jesus suffered outside the gate, he sanctified his people through his own blood so that we can worship God. So there is two things that we understand. If you look at the Levitical law of what burning the offering outside the camp meant. First is what we talked about. It's the full intention that there is an atonement coming that is complete. Every year there is something that the Jews celebrated called Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement. But every year they had to celebrate it because it wasn't complete. But there will be a time when the Day of Atonement becomes complete. It is fulfilled. That's what this is pointing to. But there's a second one. The execution outside the gate means that this sacrifice was excluded from the people. This sacrifice would be shamed. And this is where we understand that Jesus was classified as a blasphemer and he was killed outside the camp. He was killed in Golgotha. The rejection of Jesus Christ is the final understanding that we have that he was an outcast of even his own people as he offered up his sacrifice to God. That's what we are to understand. See, there's a level here that we understood. Here's another level. It's talking about the same atonement, but there are two dimensions to it. There's the day of atonement, and then there's a rejection. So it says in verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, 
and bear the reproach he endured. What does that mean? That means we also, as disciples and people of Jesus Christ, need to also go outside and bear that shame. We bear the reproach that he endured. Jesus going outside the camp is calling for us to go outside the camp. Our task as doing life together as a community is to emulate Jesus in every way. We don't say, I like Jesus here, I'm not going to do this here. I like him here, but this one's a little tough, Jesus. Our goal and our purpose as a life of believers is to emulate him in every dimension, even though it would be difficult. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? And let me tell you a simple Simple answer, and then I'll, I'll evaluate a little more, elaborate. First of all, you do it because that's where God is. That's it. Why do we go outside the camp to endure reproach? Because that's where God is. God is outside the camp. So we go where God is. Let me qualify that. The readiness to bear reproach or Jesus' shame is integral to our understanding of discipleship. There is a story that we see in Exodus of what happens when the Israelites were saved, they were redeemed out of Egypt. What did they do? Moses went up the mountain. What did they do? They built a golden calf. Where? Inside the camp. They built a golden calf. And after that, what did Moses do? Long story short, Moses built a tent outside the camp. That's where God would come visit his people. He would visit his people outside the camp. No longer was he inside, he was outside the camp. So whenever Moses needed to converse with God, talk with God, he went to the tent outside the camp. It's all all over Leviticus, especially Leviticus chapter 33. And it means that the camp is rejected by God. This world is rejected by God. You want to love the world, but the world has already been rejected by God. So the world does reject God, but it's been rejected by God. And so where would you rather be? In the world where you think life is easier, where it might be comfortable, but it'll be comfortable for a time because that's temporary. The world is passing away. Or would you be with God? You can either gain everything eventually losing everything. Or you can try to gain everything, ultimately, you know, in that sense, lose it all. Here's the key. The key here is that even though you lose everything, you have Jesus. And having Jesus is infinitely better than to gain everything here in this world. Every single gift, wealth, power, luxury that you can think of in this world if you could give it up and you could just gain jesus would you do it the answer is obviously should be yes and here it's juxtaposed to understand that even if you lose everything here in this world if you have jesus you are infinitely better off than anybody who's gained a lot of toys i remember seeing a bumper sticker when i was younger i don't think many people do it anymore people don't put bumper stickers i never liked it why would you you know make your car ugly but 
There are people who still like bumper stickers, so I apologize if you have a bumper sticker. I apologize to you again after if you come up to me and tell me that. But the bumper sticker said, uh, the one who dies with the most toys wins. You don't win anything. What do you win? What do you win? Do you, wanna, do you want a trophy? Do you want me to give you a trophy? You don't win anything. The person who dies with the most toys doesn't gain anything. But the person who dies with faith in Jesus Christ gains the world. And that's what we need to understand. That's why we endure. Sound teaching, hardships, we emulate Jesus, we endure because of what the Lord is offering his people. 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It's a sober reminder that there will always be things to try to hinder us from worshiping God. It doesn't matter if you're in communist China or here in the United States. There will always be something that will try to hinder you from worshiping God. Always something. Look at us in our luxury and our freedom. Don't we get bored a little bit? Aren't we sometimes a little tired? Pastor Eugene, I had a really rough week. I couldn't really pay attention. In worship, I couldn't sing. Things like that. There's always something that will try to keep us. But there's a sober reminder that what we really want in our heart of hearts is to seek uninterrupted, intimate fellowship with God. That means we want to meet Jesus face to face. That's the heart of a disciple. Through him then, verse 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips and that acknowledges his name. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our heart is to worship God. So right now, there are opportunities that God gives us to worship Him. What kind of sacrifices pleases God now? It's not the sacrifice of animals. So what kind of sacrifices? There are three things shared here. Number one, praise. Number two, doing good. And number three, sharing what you have. Those things are the sacrifices that the Lord is talking about. Let's start with number one, praise. It says the fruit of the lips. There's two things I want us to get from that. Two things. Number one is confession. Number two is singing. Singing. Earlier in the song, I, I, I don't know who it is, so I'm not trying to embarrass you. We had a song today, this morning, that was kind of upbeat. Again, I'll mention Peter and his fantastic drum playing. Makes you want to clap, right? One person clapped, and when no one else clapped, that clapping I heard kind of died down, which is kind of sad. You know, brother or sister, wherever we are, keep on clapping. It's for the Lord, right? If no one follows you, clap, clap on, by your own and praise the Lord. I mean, if that's your conviction in heart, as long as it's on beat, if you're not on beat, then we have other things to talk about. So, but what are the absolutely necessary things? Praise. Fruit of the lips. We are a confessional church. You need to say with your lips that the Lord is God, that the Lord is good, that He is Savior, He is King. We are a confessional church. That's what fruit of the lips mean. And number two, we need singing. The fruit of the lips inevitably, inevitably brings us to singing. Look at all of the Bible. Now I'm going to get to a little bit of a harder part. Men today don't sing. It's very unfortunate. You can blame it on the song. It's too feminine, blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. You need to sing. There are too many tone-deaf men out there. We're going to have lessons for you one day. Right? But I'm telling you this. I don't care if you're tone deaf or you have perfect pitch. What you're called to do, you're called to do. 
you are called to sing. The fruit of your lips has to go out. This is why I actually love the sanctus that we sing often, the Gloria Patri. The Gloria Patri is simply glory to the Father, but it's the first words of the Gloria Patri. It's glory to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. We're worshiping the triune God. That's what we're singing. You don't need to clap to that song, but you need to sing that song. It's a fruit of the lips. And I love that song, especially because men and women can sing that song very comfortably. It's not overly emotional. I love the music, you know. Glory be to the Father and to the... And you can't really sing it like whimsically. So the fruit of the lips is with all that you have. You muster it up and then you sing it. It doesn't really come out like that because it's something that you muster up the fruit of the lips. That's what the church needs to be. That's what worship is. I can tell if you are a strong or weak Christian just simply by that one standard. It's a biblical standard. How do you sing praises to God? How do you sing praises to God? What has God done for his people? How do you express it with the sacrifice of praise? So I hope that encourages you all to sing well and to sing for the Lord. Number two is about doing good or deeds. We need to do things. Actions need to follow what we confess with our lips. You can't just sing and have your life be a mess. And the deeds need to follow. And so, actually, two and three are very similar to each other in that when we see the first point that I made, and then we see two and three, doing good and sharing what you have, which is deeds and share what you have is practicality, right? You need to do the deeds and you need to be practical. It shows us what? It shows us that the Christian life is one of worship. And true worship consists of these things, and it boils it down to basically two. You love God and you love your neighbor. That's worship to God. You love God and you love your neighbor. So why do we sing? Why do we do good? Why do we share what we have? It's because we love God and we love our neighbor. That's our worship to God now. And a lot of it I covered in last week's sermon, so I hope that you get to review it if you haven't. Let's go to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage of you. Obey and submit are actually here military terms. Obey is almost like the word to be incited. Like if you incite people to riot, that word would also be used. It's like to hype, you know. So in a sense, a preacher can be seen as somewhat of a hype man, but not hype for nothing. It's to be connected to the charisma of preaching. The preaching is what connects you to the word of God. And that's why leaders should be trusted and their authority should be respected because preachers need to recognize their place in the structure of what God has ordered. That means preachers are under the accountability of God. At the end of a preacher's life, a pastor's life, he gives an account to God for the people that God has placed under him. This is not an easy task. It's a very, very scary task. It's a mind-boggling thing to want to be a preacher. I understand that. But if you have the call, you have the call. And so this is something that is to be done. And he is now talking to the people about preachers. 
If preachers are there over your life, then they should be trusted, their authority should be respected because of your respect to God and how the preacher sees himself under the accountability of God. And so that's why the second part of verse 17 is there. I don't want to go too long into this because I think we kind of understand, this church understands, but the clause is a sober reminder that the welfare of the community is tied to the quality of their response to the current leaders that they have. And when I mean preacher, I don't only mean myself or Pastor Paul. I'm talking about all the elders too. They are all our shepherds who have been called, some more in the element of preaching, I suppose, like myself. But it's a sober reminder that the welfare of this church is connected to the shepherds. It's absolutely true, even pragmatically. I don't care how much you hate your leader. It could be the leader of the country. You can hate them all you want. But if that leader gets struck down, the whole nation is shaken. Absolutely. The leader should get replaced by another leader. That's great. That's why we have elections and things like that in our country. But if the leader gets struck down, the whole country is shaken. If a leader of a church gets struck down, the whole church is shaken. Absolutely. So that's why this is a very scary verse too because it's talking about the structure and order God has placed and we need to understand the importance of that order. It's for our benefit. It's so that we have an advantage. If there is joy within the preacher, there's joy within the congregation, there's joy within the congregation, there's joy within the preacher. And that's why he says in verse 18 and 19, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. I'll just talk, tackle the last one. Any shepherd in the right mind would long to be with his sheep. He wants to be with the people that he ministers to. That's why you pray for your leaders. Apparently this leader, this author, was separated from his church at the time. Pray for your leaders. A leader's heart is to always be with his people. There was an interview, and I did this book because of the interview that I listened to, of someone who was asked as a pastor, as a pastor, what's the best part about your ministry? What's the best part about your ministry? And he would say, the people. And they say, okay, what's the worst part about your ministry? The people. It's the people. And I realize this more and more as I see parents, and as also I am a parent. If you go to a parent, what's the best part about your life? A lot of parents will say, it's my kid, my kids. What's the hardest part about your life? They'll say, my kid. Because we love the people. And with love, there are difficult, difficult times. You can be the saddest that you've never imagined you could be sad, the level of sadness that you could have because of your kid. It's different from when you're single. When you're single, you could have a sadness of, let's say, a level, you know, minus 10. When you're married, that sadness can go even more longer, bigger, you know. Minus 12, you know. When you have a kid, that sadness goes to minus negative infinity. It's just insane how far that can go down. That parental love that unites and solidifies a child, when you have parents that love a child, what that love does 
it unites siblings together, but it also affirms and solidifies their place in the world. If you have parents that love you, it affirms your place in the world. That's what parents do when they stay together and they love their child. It, they understand their relation to the world. And shepherds provide a similar benefit. Shepherds, by loving their congregation, God has ordered it so that there is proper love for one another, proper godly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love for one another, and their connection to the world is clear. Jesus gave us leaders for our benefit. That's why we pray for them. It is ultimately not for the leader's glory. It's not so that a pastor can be lifted up and, you know, just loved, <laughs> insta-famous, those kind of things. That's not why. It's for our benefit and for the glory of God. That's why the church does well. It's for the glory of God. That's why the preacher must be clear of conscience, cannot be given into sin. Why? For the glory of God, for the benefit of the people. And so Jesus gave us leaders for our benefit. It's for his glory. And we see this order taking place because God is building his church. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for the graces that he has given you, even though your life may not be perfect in the order that was described, but it's God who has given us this grace and makes us understand what is good now. And we praise God even for that goodness. We praise God for the grace where he covered us when we were falling short a little bit. Look at our church as an example. We are continually being what? Reformed. That means we continually go to the Bible. That means yesterday we weren't as reformed because we continually push ourselves to the word of God. But God gave us grace to cover us for that past. So praise the Lord for that. I love what the Lord is doing here in our church. So let us praise the Lord for that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us. We thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon unworthy people. But your love, your mercy is so great on our lives. The understanding that you give us help us now to reflect and praise and worship to you in every way that would please you. May our sacrifices give you glory. Let us take this time to pray. And as we have been called, ordered, commanded to do, let us do in joy and serve the Lord in worship in every area that he calls us to. And so wherever your heart is convicting you to worship God, why don't you lift it up to the Lord and offer up your life as a sacrifice of worship. Let's pray.